This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to uh, the Witnesses of History for the middle of May and quite a few short reports this time, starting with the arrest of Osip Mandelstam on the 13th of May 1934 by Nadezhda and the circumstances surrounding the death of Osip, greatest Russian poet of the modern period, are still uncertain. According to one version, he died in East Siberia on the way to a concentration camp. Anna Akhmatova, the poet, was staying with the Mandelstams at the time of the arrest, described here. The day dragged on with excruciating slowness. In the evening, the translator David Brodsky turned up and then just wouldn't leave. There wasn't a bit to eat in the house and Mandelstam went round to the neighbours to try and get something for Akhmatova's supper. We hoped that Brodsky might now get bored and leave, but no. He shot after M and was still with him when he returned with the solitary egg he had managed to scrounge. Sitting down again in his chair, Brodsky continued to recite the lines he liked best from his favourite poets, Shulevsky and Polonsky. There was nothing he didn't know about both Russian and French poetry. He just went on and on, quoting and reminiscing, and it was only after midnight that we realised why he was being such a nuisance. Suddenly... At about one o'clock in the morning, there was a sharp, unbearably explicit knock on the door. They've come for Osip, I said, and went to open the door. Some men in civilian overcoats were standing outside. There seemed to be a lot of them. For a split second, I had a tiny flicker of hope that this wasn't still wasn't it. My eye had not made out the uniforms under the covert cloth topcoats. In fact, topcoats of this kind were also a sort of uniform, though they were intended as a disguise, like the old pea-green coats of the Tsarist Okrana. But this I didn't know then. All hope vanished as soon as the uninvited guests stepped inside. I'd expected them to say, how do you do? Or, is this Mandelstan's apartment? Or something else of the kind that any visitor says in order to be let in by the person who opens the door. But the night visitors of our times do not stand on such ceremony, like secret police agents the world over, I suppose. Without a word, or a moment's hesitation, but with consummate skill and speed, they came in past me, not pushing, however, and the apartment was suddenly full of people already checking our identity papers, running their hands over our hips with a precise, well-practised movement, and feeling our pockets to make sure we had no concealed weapons. M came out of the large room. "'Have you come for me?' he asked. One of the agents, a short man, looked at him with what could have been a faint smile and said, your papers? M took them out of his pocket, and after checking them, the agent handed them a warrant. M read it and nodded. In the language of the secret police, this was what was known as a night operation. After checking our papers, presenting their warrants, and making sure there would be no resistance, they began to search the apartment. Brodsky slumped into his chair and sat there motionless, like a huge wooden sculpture of some savage tribe. He puffed and wheezed with an angry, hurt expression on his face. When I chanced at one point to speak to him, asking him, I think, to get some books from the shelves for M to take with him, he answered rudely, Let M get them himself, and again began to wheeze. 
Toward morning, when we were at last permitted to walk freely around the apartment and the tired Czechists no longer even looked searchingly at us as we did so, Brodsky suddenly roused himself, held up his hand like a schoolboy and asked permission to go to the toilet. The agent directing the search looked at him with contempt. You can go home, he said. What? Brodsky said in astonishment. Home, the man repeated and turned his back. The secret police despised their civilian helpers. Brodsky had no doubt been ordered to sit with us that evening in case we tried to destroy any manuscripts when we heard the knock on the door. This report comes from the Daily Telegraph of the 12th of May 1866 and is a report of the panic in Lombard Street. One of the most anxious and exciting days ever endured has passed over the city. It was at once seen that the failure of Overend, Gurney and Co. would increase the general distrust which had latterly prevailed and that the banks which were known to have connections with the house would have to provide ample funds this morning. Nor were the largest precautionary measures unnecessary. Long before the banks were opened, the narrow streets and thoroughfares leading into Lombard Street, which forms the centre, were crowded and a run upon the various monetary institutions was obvious. The first event of the morning was the advance in the official rate of discount from 8 to 9%. This resolve was, of course, anticipated. The brokers had all along refused to work at the minimum of 8%. Even on the stock exchange there was no supply of money and borrowers had to proceed to the bank where loans on consoles only in limited amounts were granted at about 10% for a few days. It must be understood that the Bank of England was not, has not invaded any duty because it had nothing to do with the cause or the development of the crisis. It afforded a discount accommodation yesterday of something like four million sterling, a sum twice as great as ever was furnished in this way before. And with regard to the establishment which had fallen, it hesitated to interfere with the most imperative motives as the securities tendered were non-available. The house of Overend, Gurney & Co. was in the habit of employing loans made to it for short periods and on the strength of that accommodation, we believe, it made advances to the extent of its unsecured deposits, along with its own capital, to schemes of various kinds on long-dated bills with which securities as unfinished railway debentures not available on emergency. Thus, they were working a custom of temporary deposits against a risk of long credits upon the basis that the temporary deposits would continue and carry them through with their renewable paper. This is the baneful and fallacious system which is broken down with a crash and that too without involving the goodness or badness of the schemes thus supported. So soon as the panic commenced, and the deposits not only ceased but began to be withdrawn, they had only unfinished railway debentures and paper of that kind to meet their customers with, or offer to the Bank of England. That establishment could not pretend to give gold or notes for such securities at such a crisis, and the discount house fell. From a 19th century financial crisis back to AD 211. It's not uh, dated other than that. It's the deification of the emperor, Septimius Severus, written by Herodian. Severus had died in Britain and Herodian was a Greek historian living in Rome at the time. 
Before doing anything else, Caracalla and Gita completed the funeral honours of their father. It is the Roman custom to give divine status to those of their emperors who die with heirs to succeed them. This ceremony is called deification. Public mourning, with a mixture of festive and religious ritual, is proclaimed throughout the city, and the body of the dead man is buried in the normal way with a costly funeral. Then they make an exact wax replica of the man, which they put on a huge ivory bed strewn with gold-threaded coverings raised high up in the entrance to the palace. This image, deathly pale, rests there like a sick man, Either side of the bed is attended for most of the day, the whole senate sitting on the left, dressed in black, while on the right are all the women who can claim special honours from the position of their husbands or fathers. Not one of these can be seen wearing gold or adorned with necklaces, but they are all dressed in plain white garments, giving the appearance of mourners. This continues for seven days, during each of which doctors come and approach the bed, take a look at the supposed invalid and announce a daily deterioration in his condition. When at last the news is given that he is dead, the bed or bier is raised on the shoulders of the noblest members of the equestrian order and ch chosen young senators carried along the sacred way and placed in the Forum Romanium, where the Roman magistrates usually lay down their office. Tiers of seats rise up on either side, and on one flank a chorus of children from their noblest and most respected families stands facing a body of women selected on merit. Each group sings hymns and songs of thanksgiving in honour of the dead emperor, composed in a solemn and mournful key. After this, the bier is raised and carried outside the city walls to the Campus Martinus, where on the widest part of the plain a square structure is erected, looking like a house made from only the largest timbers jointed together. The whole inside is filled with firewood and the outside is covered with golden garments, ivory decorations and rich pictures. On top of this rests another structure, similar in design and finish, but smaller, with doors and open panels. Third and fourth stories, decreasing in size, are topped by a fifth, the smallest of all. The shape of the whole might be compared with a lighthouse at the entrance to a harbour, which guards ships on safe courses at night by its light. Such a lighthouse is commonly called a pharos. When the beer has been taken to the second story and put inside, aromatic herbs and incense of every kind produce on earth, together with flowers, grasses and juices collected for their smell, are brought and poured in its heaps. Every nation and city, every person without distinction of rank or position, competes in bringing these last gifts in honour of their emperor. When the pile of aromatic material is very high and the whole space filled, a mounted display is held around the structure. The whole equestrian order rides around, wheeling in well-disciplined circles in the Pyrrhic style. Chariots also circle in the same formations, the charioteers dressed in purple and carrying images with the masks of famous Roman generals and emperors. The display over, the heir to the throne takes a brand and sets it to the building. All the spectators crowd in and add to the flame. Everything is very easily and readily consumed by the fire because of the mass of firewood and incense inside. From the highest and smallest story, as from some battlement, an eagle is released and carried up into the sky with the flames. The Romans believe that this bird bears the soul of the emperor from earth to heaven. Thereafter, 
the dead emperor is worshipped with the rest of the gods. The 15th of May, 1940, Erwin Rommel's report of the German breakthrough on the Meuse. The Maginot Line, an elaborate system of fortresses along the French-German border, was outflanked by the Germans in May 1940. By the evening of the 12th, the Germans were across the Franco-Belgian frontier and overlooking the Meuse, in a sector where only the French 2nd and 9th Armies, without anti-tank guns or anti-aircraft artillery, faced them. Rommel was commanding the 7th Panzer Division. The way to the west was now open. The moon was up, and for the time being we could expect no real darkness. I'd already given orders, in the plan for the breakthrough, for the leading tanks to scatter the road and verges with machine and anti-tank gunfire at intervals during the drive to Avers, which I hoped would prevent the enemy from laying mines. The rest of the Panzer Regiment was to follow close behind the leading tanks and be ready at any time to fire salvos to either flank. The mass of the division had instructions to follow up the Panzer Regiment Lorriborne. The tanks now rolled in in a long column through the line of fortifications and on towards the first houses which had been set alight by our fire. In the moonlight we could see the men of 7th Motorcycle Battalion moving forward on foot beside us. Occasionally an enemy machine gun or anti-tank gun fired but none of their shots came anywhere near us. Our artillery was dropping heavy, harassing fire on villages and the road far ahead of the regiment. Gradually, the speed increased. Before long, we were 500, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 yards into the fortified zone. Engines roared, tanks tracks clanked and clattered. Whether or not the enemy was firing was impossible to tell in the ear-splitting noise. We crossed the railway line a mile or so southwest of Sol de Chateau and then swung north to the main road, which was soon reached, then off along the road and past the first houses. The people in the houses were rudely awoken by the din of our tanks, the clatter and roar of tracks and engines. Troops lay bivouacked beside the road, military vehicles stood parked in farmyards and in some places on the road itself. Civilians and French troops, their faces distorted with terror, lay huddled in the ditches alongside hedges and in every hollow beside the road. We passed refugee columns, the carts abandoned by their owners, who had fled in panic into the fields. On we went, at a steady speed, towards our objective. Every so often, a quick glance at the map by a shaded light and a short wireless message to Divisional HQ to report the position, and thus the success of 25th Panzer Regiment. Every so often, a lookout of the hatch to assure myself that there was still no resistance and that contact was being maintained to the rear. The flat countryside lay spread out around us under the cold light of the moon. We were through the Maginot Line. It was hardly conceivable. Twenty-two years before, it stood for four and a half years before this self-same enemy and had won victory after victory and yet finally lost the war. And now we'd broken through the renowned Maginot Line and were driving deep into enemy territory. It was not just a beautiful dream. It was reality. And we finish with Charlotte Bronte's short report from inside the great exhibition at the Crystal Palace in 1851. The palace had been designed by Sir Joseph Paxton and contained a floor area more than 800,000 square feet and over eight miles of display tables. 
and it was in Hyde Park. Yesterday I went for the second time to the Crystal Palace. We remained in it about three hours, and I must say I was more struck with it on this occasion than at my first visit. It's a wonderful place. Vast, strange, new, and impossible to describe. Its grandeur does not consist in one thing, but in the unique assemblage of all things. Whatever human industry has created, you find there, from the great compartments filled with railway engines and boilers, with mill machinery in full work, with splendid carriages of all kinds, with harness of every description, to the glass-covered and velvet-spread stands loaded with the most gorgeous work of the goldsmith and silversmith, and the carefully guarded caskets full of real diamonds and poles worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. It may be called a bazaar or a fair, but it's such a bazaar or fair as Eastern Genie might have created. It seems as if the only magic could have gathered this mass of wealth from all the ends of the earth, as if none but supernatural hands could have arranged it thus, with such a blaze and contrast of odours and marvellous power of effect. The multitude, filling the great aisles, seems ruled and subdued by some invisible influence. Amongst the 30,000 souls that peopled it the day I was there, not one loud noise was to be heard, not one irregular movement seen. The living tide rolls on quietly with a deep hum, like the sea heard from the distance. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>